Welcome to the Hypergen Founders Podcast, the show where we explore the minds behind the innovative companies. I'm your host, Kian. I'm your host, Alex. And each week, we'll dive into conversations with visionary founders. From garage startups to global enterprises, get ready for inspiration, insights, and the secrets behind their success. If you're curious about how these visionaries are turning their million and billion dollars ideas into reality, then this podcast is for you. Stay tuned for engaging discussions on technology, innovations, and leadership. This is the Founders Podcast. Let's begin. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Founders Podcast. For our guest, we have Parash Childress, ex-Googler and the CEO of Hope Online. CEO for 14 years, which is amazing. And Help Online, it's a performance marketing agency for SaaS companies. Why don't you tell us the story behind your company and why you picked that name? Oh, sure. Yeah. I founded the, the agency in 2009. And I never really intended at that time to build up a marketing agency, but it happened by accident. And I think that's true for a lot of agency founders. And the name also was a, a bit of an accident, but uh, it came up just spontaneously because in back in the early 2000s, if, if you all remember, the you would hop online because we, don't, we didn't live online the way we do now with our phones, but you would actually go somewhere like to a, a desktop computer and hop online, go online. And that's how the name came up, <laughs> but it really dates the age of the agency. That's really catchy, actually. I had no idea that's how the name like came about. We used to go for Skype or we hop on Skype, hop on Yahoo. Yeah. So it makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. Back then, nobody says I, I'll hop online and do blah, <laughs> blah, blah anymore. But they, they used to say that a lot like 15 years ago before mobile devices, really. You said it was an accident. What do you mean by that? Did you start off as a freelancer initially? So yeah. I was trying to decide whether I wanted to, to look for another job or I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but in the meantime, I needed some income. So I started consulting a company, which back then it was called CallPoint. Now you probably know it as TELUS International. They were the buyers, a call center. And that was the first client even before I had started the agency. And then after working together for about a month or maybe a couple of months, I asked about getting paid and they said, are you going to send us an invoice? And I thought, good question. And I realized that I couldn't get paid unless I sent an invoice with a company name. And then I had to rush out and set up the company to, so that I could get paid. And from there, just eventually the work with them went pretty well. And we decided to hire two other guys and put them in the call center and do a revenue share agreement. And so we didn't pay any rent to the guys at CallPoint. We we got a couple of stations on the call center floor for these two guys. And in return, we kicked back some revenue share to them. And we did that for probably about half a year and until we realized now it's time to, to, to go out on our own and get a real office and keep all of our revenue. And they were really cool about it also. And they remained a client and we're still in touch with those guys today. The initial service that you start, it wasn't exactly like Google ads or was it a mix that you were doing for them? Yeah, back then it was all Google AdWords in the 2009, 10, and 11. Around 2012, SEO got really big, mainly because of two huge Google algorithm updates, notorious updates called Google Panda and Google Penguin. And that's when 
basically black hat SEO stopped working as we know it because black hat SEO used to just dominate SEO. Finally, Google cracked down with these two updates and then a whole industry just for agencies, the opportunity exploded for white hat SEO, which meant cleaning up your website and doing legitimate content marketing and legitimate link building. And so we made a major pivot from what we call Google AdWords back then into SEO. And from 2012 to probably 2016, which is when I returned back from Google and we were mostly an SEO agency. But when I got back from Google, we did another pivot back. It was really full circle into what was then, what was now called Google ads actually. And now I'd say we're a mix of both, but it's been an interesting seesaw story between PPC and SEO over the years. That's interesting. How did you build that connection with Google? Because I know that's probably helped you a lot through the years to know where to pivot. Let's see. I learned about Google AdWords in, even in the very early days of, I think it was in 2004 was when I first became aware of it. And I was very intrigued by it because this was the perfect combination of the things that I liked, which is the copywriting aspect, the keywords and the copy and the psychology behind how people search combined with the data and the analytical aspect of it. Bidding back then, there was no automated bidding. You felt like a day trader bidding manually, every changing bids every few minutes. And the analytical aspect was a lot of fun. There was a kind of adrenaline rush there on that side as well. So for me, this was a match made in heaven when I discovered Google AdWords. Back then, I was in business school. And I came to Bulgaria in 2005 and immediately started to implement this with the company. I was working with a few companies, but I was trying to implement this into everything that I did in Bulgaria. And then eventually that became the agency that we started in 2009. Mm -hmm. And, and then I the, guess... the relationship with Google, I guess it, it evolved because I went to work for Google as the country manager for Bulgaria in 2014. We opened an office, a Google office in 2015. That didn't go too well. It turned out Bulgaria was a smaller market. I don't know how they didn't see that from day one, but they pulled back from that plan and shut down that office in Sofia. And, and my Google days were over around mid 2016. So then I went back to the agency, but I've always maintained a really great relationship with a lot of people at Google. And now we're a premier Google partner agency. So we have still a lot of connections, a lot of privileged support that we get from Google's agency team. And then fast track to right now, you guys are mostly working with SaaS companies. How did you identify that target market? Because I'm guessing like initially, mm -hmm. when you're starting off your agency, you probably work with different types of clients, like not just SaaS. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to focus on that and mm -hmm. mostly why? Yeah, I think it was around 19 or so where the realization came, it, it became very clear to me that if we wanted to, to really accelerate growth, we needed to focus more on a specific uh, industries or even a single industry. We needed to, to really niche down. And I was listening to agency podcasts and there was one in particular. I don't know if you listened to Jason Swank, his smart agency masterclass, I think. But lots of his guests, he, he interviews agency founders and CEOs mostly. And it seemed like the, the agencies that had the most success were the ones that put a stake in the ground and said, we're going to specialize in this type of a business. 
So either you specialize uh, in an industry vertical or a group of related industries, or maybe you have a very narrow uh, service focus, but we didn't want to narrow our service focus. So we decided we needed to pick an industry. And that was around late 2018. At the time, our most successful clients, including one big client, they were SaaS companies. And we liked working with SaaS companies because of the just the fast-paced, dynamic nature of these businesses. They were fast-growing companies. I think we just vibed with them really well because we had the same kind of working habits of moving really fast and making fast decisions, not weighted by a lot of bureaucracy. And so we decided that we need to go further in this direction. And we didn't see many SaaS-focused agencies back then in 2018. If you fast forward to today, I think there's tons of them. It changed a lot. It sounds like every third or fourth agency maybe that you talk to is a SaaS agency. And it's probably time for us to pick another more narrow vertical now. But back then that was the decision. And I think it was a good one because people now more, I think the agency landscape is so saturated that people in general prefer to work with an agency that at least is positioned as a specialist in their field. So we're still on the track, on the SaaS track, even till mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And I think me and Kian can relate to that for sure. Because when we we're starting off the agency, we had multiple services. We're targeting like multiple industries. And we just saw that first, when you have a lot of services, especially when spread out like from multiple industries, it's also harder to standardize the process right mm -hmm. and also when you're pitching to these clients when you don't have SaaS specific cases for example it's just much harder to sell to them we've seen that they're very forward thinking and they're open to experiment we do have a lot of tools that we test out with all these clients it's a good ecosystem that we see that they have out there yeah absolutely i personally geek out on SaaS tools all the time and it's another reason why my personal interest was another part of the, the reason we wanted to to go with SaaS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what are you currently seeing in the SaaS landscape? These days are a lot tougher than they were during COVID. I'm sure that's not news to anybody who's in SaaS. During COVID, there was such a fast shift and rapid digital transformation across the board that SaaS companies were major beneficiaries of it and the VC money was flowing like water. So they were getting tons of money. There was a lot of pressure to, to grow. A lot of that money was flowing into growth, which means marketing mostly and, and product. So marketing budgets were there funded by VCs that were not that strict on really the, the accountability of that money, at least not in the short term. And so Companies, I think back then in 2020, 2021, they weren't able to really grow their internal marketing teams fast enough to keep up with that surge in demand. And a lot of them turned to agencies. So agencies were major beneficiaries of COVID, especially agencies that served SaaS. Now what I'm seeing is that's dried up a lot because as the economy is shaky now, I don't know whether you would say it's, it's a recession or heading into recession. I think it's actually not going to be a, a, a technical recession. But because of the uncertainty around that, the the valuations have gone down, the money from venture capital has become a lot tighter and the growth at any cost mindset is gone. And now it's 
growth with very specific accountability and efficiency goals. And because of that now, one tendency is in, in terms of impacting agencies, marketing budgets are shrinking. The first thing that companies want to do is protect their own marketing team. So if something has to get cut, if a vendor has to get cut, that would be an agency first before they would lay off uh, marketing team members. And people are, in my experience, even the SaaS marketing companies that need help, they're taking a lot longer to make real decisions and to commit to an agency. So I do think the times are tougher for SaaS. I'm going to be going to the SaaS doc conference in, in Dublin in a couple of months from now, um, actually about a month and a half. And I'll get a much better read on the or the pulse of the SaaS industry. I think we're coming out of that trough and I think it's going to start coming up again because of things like uh, generative AI has infused a, a whole lot of new energy and excitement into SaaS. And I think that wave is now starting and I think SaaS is going to uplift again in the, in the next couple of years. So I'm optimistic. And I think that these businesses, they rely a lot on funding. Uh, and I've even had close friends, like even directly had like pressure from the investor where these investors, they have so much capital, so much control that they can even remove founders and they can easily push away agencies and whatnot. SaaS, they're like more bootstrapped or that had funding and are now more profitable. I think those are the businesses that are winning right now. They're making money at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think it's because those bootstrappers, they really have always appreciated the fact that money is never going to be free and unlimited forever. And at some point, any company to exist long-term has to be profitable. So I think that those bootstrap companies had the discipline even long before COVID. And I think that's why now they're able to adapt and they're able to be more resilient through the downturn. As a bootstrap company yourself, what differentiates you guys from all the competitors in the market? Because like you said, there's a ton of agencies, a mm -hmm. ton of paid ads agencies, a ton of SaaS agencies. So what makes you guys unique? Yeah, I think that is one of the most common questions that I get asked in sales calls all the time, because most people from the outside view the agency landscape as mostly commodity services. The worst answer I could give to that question in a sales call would be to say that we have great people, we're excellent at PPC. So any kind of answer that would say we have the best people or we're experts at what's viewed as a commodity service, which is PPC management or SEO, generally it's the wrong answer. We're trying to develop some really proprietary stuff the most exciting thing that we're working on right now is a machine learning based solution. It's called PLTV. And this is how I would answer that question is that we are trying to anticipate a major shift coming next year in the demise of third-party cookie tracking. And I know everybody has heard about this and Google has announced it and has been postponing it for, <laughs> for yeah. a few years. I think that the day of reckoning is finally going to come in 2024 Advertisers of all shapes and sizes, I don't think they fully appreciate how much the third-party cookie in the browser drives your return on ad spend. It's such a powerful thing, and it's been there since the very beginning of digital advertising. When that goes away, in order to succeed, there's going to be a major loss of data and a loss of signal. Google and other ad platforms are going to need to supplement that data loss with the advertiser's own data, the, the first-party data. 
And we're working on a solution in anticipation of that major shift away from third-party cookie-based data and towards first-party client-owned or advertiser-controlled data. And that is called PLTV, which stands for Predictive Lifetime Value. What we do is we take as much first-party data as we can get from the client, in particular data that's captured right up front at the time of a sign-up. Let's say if it's a SaaS premium or a free trial type of a product, more of a product-led growth experience. There's a certain amount of data that they can capture in the sign-up form about that new customer. And in the behavioral data in the first, let's say, 24 or 48 or 72 hours, as they're using that product at the very beginning of a trial or in a, in a freemium environment. So we wanna combine zero party data and behavioral data, which is both sits under the umbrella of first party data. It's controlled by the, the company. We wanna build machine learning models that can predict the lifetime value, the future value of that new customer. The reason why that's important is because we want to feed that data back to Google ads and to other ad platforms, but primarily Google, so that Google can bid to value against the future prospects that it sees that look like those high value prospects. So it's like a micro audience creation approach, but we want to predict lifetime value so that Google can maximize that predicted lifetime value using its own algorithms. And it's based on first party data. I think an exciting future for us as an agency, I don't think any other agencies that I've seen uh, have the full capability of doing that. There are a lot of agencies I, I do believe that are very data-driven and that have a lot of capabilities around helping their clients better utilize their data. But I think we have a very specific solution with PLTV that makes us unique. We work with a lot of companies from small to enterprises and honestly, almost pretty much none of them really know the real lifetime value. It's very hard to calculate or that's something they're not focusing on as much. Do you think that's a metric that SaaS companies should be focusing on more when they're running their ads and figuring out their bidding strategy there? Yeah, absolutely. We see the same thing that there tends to be a lot of shorter term focus on performance for, for performance marketing. So most of the time, B2B lead gen companies and SaaS companies focus on uh, the, the pipeline value or the, the lead volumes. So let's say a director of demand gen or a marketing director or CMO, uh, typically their job is to generate leads for sales. And this is part of the problem because they're not really rewarded or compensated on the revenue or even beyond that, the, the true lifetime value that's getting generated from those leads. What we see changing is that when marketing teams get more integrated with sales, and when you start to de-silo that historic division between marketing and sales, and marketing starts to become incentivized by pipeline creation, revenue growth, and value creation, well, then you can start having the conversations with marketing teams about let's aim this marketing investment at value creation or lifetime value. And therefore, let's start measuring it today. If you haven't started, let's start doing cohort analysis and understanding um, wh where are your most valuable customers and how can we use that data to create audiences for the ad platforms. And so it is starting to change, but historically it has been tough to have a serious LTV conversation with marketing folks. Yeah. It seems to have been more yeah. of a CFO conversation, I think. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think you bring up a good point where we've seen this a lot too, where teams are disconnected. Marketing has one KPI, sales has another KPI. And like you said, like marketing's KPI might be to bring in like a ton of leads, but they're not actually tracking then how many of those are converting. Are they converting to sales? Are they just cheap leads that lead to nowhere? So I think that's a really good point. Like making sure those two teams are aligned and their success mm -hmm. is linked to both of them. Yeah. And one, one thing that is also, I think, assisting the shift towards a focus on LTV is the current environment that we're in with investors now putting a lot more emphasis on companies' efficiency of marketing spend. So during COVID, when the money was flowing, it wasn't really about, hey, how much value are you creating and what is the efficiency of the spend? It was simply, can you grow faster than competitor B? And can you be one of the Coke or a Pepsi when this market is mature in 10 years? Can you be one of the winners? And we don't care. We'll spend whatever it takes to make sure you're either a Coke or a Pepsi because there's only going to be two gorillas in this category in five years. But that's not the case anymore. So now the investors are looking at it and saying, you really have to demonstrate that the marketing dollars today are actually creating value that's measurable. And that's where lifetime value and predictive lifetime value becomes much more relevant. Do you think that's also more of a winning strategy because this way they can grow out the business much earlier? They don't have to rely on later gains? I do. I think it's the best long-term strategy, but I also want to be realistic. There could be short-term trade-offs. A lot of times, and what we're seeing in our testing of PLTV is that you can bring in higher value customers, but it can be also at the expense of volume. So you might have to sacrifice a customer that may spend a lot with you in the first year, but have a lower you. You may trade off that customer for a customer that might spend less with you this quarter or this year, but is going to be very loyal and it's never going to churn and they're going to have a, a five or a 10 year lifespan with a very high lifetime value. So that might mean that you sacrifice actual revenue growth in the very near term of this quarter or this maybe even this year. And that's a tough pill to swallow for companies that are still under pressure to keep growing. I want to be also realistic with the listeners that there, there are trade-offs to optimizing for lifetime value. What about small advertisers? Let's say companies with more limited budget initially, like how would they deal with the third-party companies going away and PLTV? Because you need volume, good adoption rate, probably to see all that and to have mm -hmm. this audience. Like, yeah. how are they going to deal with this? That's a great question. And I think th that they're going to get pinched even harder by the demise of third-party cookies because they will have much less ability to leverage their first-party data or any kind of big data. And they also, even before the demise of third-party cookies, I, I think that smaller advertisers have been at a increasing disadvantage in Google ads because of the fact that they don't spend as much and they don't have as much data for AI and automation to learn on. And the result of that is a competitive disadvantage when they're going up against uh, competitors in those auctions that can outspend them five to one or 10 to one because they have that additional spending can, can, translate into a data advantage, into an AI advantage. And the smaller guys don't have that. 
when third-party cookies go away, that's going to even compound that disadvantage. So I don't really know. It could be that the smaller advertisers start to steadily just get priced out of Google ads. And, and where will they go? I, I don't know. It could be that they start moving more uh, towards uh, higher up in the funnel, away from pure performance marketing and more towards branding in places like Facebook and TikTok. Uh, if it's a small B2B SaaS company, LinkedIn is, is probably the first channel I would be thinking of. And, and then also organic uh, content marketing and SEO is still very much a, a real thing. And that can't be ignored as well. So a smaller company that's most likely bootstrapped, I think that their competitive disadvantages are growing and will continue to grow as third-party cookies disappear, unfortunately. Because the promise of Google ads from day one was that the small guys could compete with the big fish. Because if you could build a better ad that spoke to the user in a better way than, the, than a huge company, then your ad could be on top and the user would click on your ad instead of the big company and you could win that business. And it was a level playing field. Unfortunately, that promise, I don't believe in that promise anymore from Google for the most part, because those big companies with their massive spending and the data that comes with it have now this huge AI advantage because now um, almost everything in Google ads is, is driven by AI. From what I've read as well, and correct me if I'm wrong, companies with smaller budget, a lot of agents suggest more down the funnel remarketing. So maybe just driving more traffic for the website and then just nurturing that audience in a longer yeah. term. Sure. Yeah. Remarketing should be a part of everyone's plan regardless. But if you think about the, the numbers of remarketing, let's say if you're doing display remarketing or you're remarketing in Facebook, LinkedIn, Google, the click-through rates, the, the volumes there, if, if you might have a 0.5% click-through rate. So for every 1,000 people that would see a remarketing ad, you're going to get 50, 50 clicks and you might get a 1% or 2% conversion on that, which is one customer. So it's not one customer, one lead. So you have to be pouring massive volume into a funnel for remarketing to have any significant impact when you consider the, the very low click-through rates on remarketing ads. And then the next metric is the very low conversion. Maybe it's a higher conversion rate because it's remarketing, but it's still probably low single digits. So remarketing alone, it's a good thing to have, but I don't think it's enough really for most companies. It's, yeah. it's not enough to say we're going to put our paid only in remarketing. I don't think that's going to move the needle much. Yeah, it's how we, you bring in that initial layer, that stuff. Yeah, we, and it, it, maybe if you, have, if you have massive organic traffic and then you remarket against that traffic, maybe that could be interesting. But then usually companies that have that much organic traffic have the budgets to do more than paid remarketing. They can do um, much bigger paid campaigns. Uh, we're seeing on the B2C space, there's a lot more UGC content and it's pretty much like taking away some of the ad spend. doesn't show in Meta's uh, report because they have their advertising revenue way up. But are you going to see that similar thing in B2B SaaS as well? UGC content? Yeah, user-generated content. Yeah, you're not referring to generative AI content, right? No, it's more like, hey, I'm showing you a video. I'm using this SaaS built an easier email list. And 
TikTok mm-hmm. style or real style and just show that. Yeah. And with the new audience, which the new buying audience, which is going to be people, millennials, zillennials, and that age, there's definitely will be a trend in that yeah. side. I think so. Yeah. And TikTok is leading the way at this. I was really surprised. I have a 13 year old daughter and when she wants to get answers to questions, uh, she doesn't turn to Google. She turns to TikTok and the answers that she's getting is from UGC. It's from these UGC videos and also YouTube as well. I'll point out YouTube and TikTok are the two major ones, but ultimately these platforms are going to monetize that. I think that Today, the industry of influencer marketing is going to evolve more and it's going to be more than just people with massive followings or famous people, but you're going to have, if I can produce really high quality UGC for TikTok in a specific vertical, I can build a a small, but a very high value audience. And then I can monetize that. That is coming gradually. Yeah. I think what Kian said also makes sense that Sometimes, especially when I've been looking for tools too, like I might open up like a video on YouTube and see what someone is recommending. So I think maybe what he was also talking about was like having like B2B influencers in the space. Mm -hmm. There's already a bunch with e-commerce, Shopify, dropshippers. That's already that niche. I think it's a matter of time where other SaaS niche comes because I'm already seeing coaches or people who teach you how to build a SaaS mm-hmm. as if it's like building a dropshipping website. Yeah. Interesting to see those trends. I think that UGC build. content is one of the major growth opportunities for creative agencies. Is to the, the corralling of all these different experts that would create UGC content an expert at a specific um, email marketing tool or an expert at whatever, all these different niche expertise, uh, they could be rounded up and and creative agencies really could be taking the lead here and providing UGC content from a network of micro-influencers and then providing that content to clients. Because if they don't do it, clients have to do it themselves. And I think even for a big brand, I think it's hard to try to round up dozens or or hundreds of micro influencers who have great UGC content and that you want to put that out there. So I do think that there's a big need for an entity to aggregate micro influencers, especially in the B2B space around the UGC content that they're creating. So I wanted to get back again on the business size. You've been running Hub for 14 years, which is a lot. A lot of businesses fail in the first or second year. So how did you approach building and developing your agency for all those years? What were some of the key lessons you learned? Yeah. In the earlier years, I think the only reason we didn't fail was because I just refused to stop working on it. If you could, one of the big advantages that I have is living in Bulgaria. And at that time, it was a great advantage because I was able to maintain such a low cost of living. Yeah. Even if the agency and the agency did was really lean, it was for many of the early years, it was me and, and a few other people. And we, I don't think we ever grew past 10 people for the first five or six years or something. And I would say to myself, hey, as long as I'm making enough that this is probably about at least a good salary that I would earn if I had a real job and I still prefer to do this, 
I would just keep going and I would I just refuse to shut it down. There probably were points where it didn't look good from, I don't think any kind of uh, potential investor or acquirer would be interested in the numbers. But as long as it was doing well enough that I wasn't losing money and I could keep my standard of living really modest here in Bulgaria, I, I just kept going. And then eventually we had some turning points. The first big turning point was that SEO turning point when Google Panda and Google Penguin came out and it's just a major rush of demand into the white hat SEO space. And so that was the first big growth pop for us. And it was all opportunistic. It was also really opportunistic when I came back from Google because I, I positioned myself as the Google guy who had all this insider information and contacts. And so we made this pivot into Google ads and, and we were pretty successful there. We had another big growth spurt at that point in 20, 2016, 2017. And then I think the last major opportunistic moment for us was COVID because as I described earlier, there was just such an imbalance of supply and demand in the market. And when things shifted so fast, agencies are like the overflow entity. When people need marketing, when something changes a lot and people need to shift or grow marketing so fast and they can't do it themselves internally, and then agencies are there. And I guess that over the years, it's been a combination of just being patient when we need to be patient and, and toughing out some of the leaner, harder years, and then putting our foot on the gas in a big way when the opportunity comes up. And you never really know when it's going to happen, actually. We didn't predict the Google Panda and Google Penguin and the big explosion of White Hat SEO in 2011, 2012. We didn't predict what happened in 2016 for us was a little bit more connected with, with my personal career story. And of course, COVID, who, who could have predicted that? That's the key, I think, for all the founders that are listening. Try as much as possible to keep your own personal living standards modest and find ways to be happy without showering yourself and splurging in a lot of things, because that's the key to being able to, to really make it through some lean years is living modestly, but still being happy and, and fulfilled. And then when opportunity arises, be ready to spot it and then jump quickly. Growth was never constant for us. It was in fits and spurts and, and including the negative growth. It's a wild ride and you just have to be ready to enjoy the upswings and then bite down on the, on the downswings. So maybe more of the story is move to a cheaper country. <laughs> yeah. Me and Kian can relate to that for sure. Because we've also lived in the States. Right now I'm in Spain, but when we're starting out the agency, we're in Bulgaria, which I think it's a really good point. When you live in a more expensive country, like your daily expenses, they can go through the roof. But because you're in a much more affordable country, you don't have to spend as much. So you could reinvest more in the business or you don't have to put so much pressure into it. Because I can agree, the first couple of years, couple of months, it's always the toughest and it's so hard just to stay afloat. Yeah. And when you think about, you all were probably both here in Bulgaria in 2008, 2009. Yeah. It, it's, back then it was even, prices were half of what they are now <laughs> in terms of the cost of a beer, the cost of a cab ride. I was paying... 200 euros or 250 euros rent for many years. So I, I didn't need the agency to, to produce that much, really. It gave me the uh, luxury of, of patience, really, maintaining that really low cost of living. 
And I know that a lot of people out there that may be listening from the States or high cost countries would say, that sounds nice, but I'm not moving to Bulgaria and I just don't have that opportunity. But there are ways to find it anywhere you are. I, I lived in New York City for eight years and it was in my 20s and I, I mostly ate pizza and hoagies and Chinese food. And I was making a very small salary, but I was loving life. And I think there are ways to optimize your standard of living no matter where you are and still find a way to be happy, which is more of a state of mind. And that's always been something that I've tried to work on since I'm practically my whole adult life. And also yeah. global talent because of COVID, global work in general, you can find people everywhere now and it's going to be much more leaner hiring, let's say someone from Latin America, from Asia, that mm -hmm. similar skill set. It's pretty beautiful now. We've also grown, me and Alex have grown the company through global talent. And uh, yeah, and the, the world is becoming definitely more globalized or unified in that sense. Everyone has Netflix, everyone goes to town, so everyone has internet. That's also uh, a good way to kind of grow your startup in a leader way. Yeah. And I, that's a great point, Kian, because in a way that, that starts to erode the natural advantage of low cost countries like Bulgaria, because now they can go to even lower cost countries and people are embracing. We're not as competitive as we used to be. Yeah. Now yeah. people are leaning a lot towards Latin America talent and even the Philippines, because they also look for people with, uh, let's say in a similar time zone or people who have worked with many U.S. companies before and especially North American companies. And they're used to their culture, they're used to their style and that familiarity helps a lot. And we've also seen that with me and Alex because we lived in the States and we went to college there. That has helped us pretty much. Our clients are mostly from North America. And we're continuing to keep that North American kind of spirit or culture in our company. Yeah. Uh, so I guess like we got to thank Google and YouTube or all the internet for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, this is a major advantage that, that I think a lot of agencies and companies in general still haven't taken full advantage of. You can have a certain face of the company. If, if you want to sell to Americans, you can have a culture, a communication style, a time zone matching to assure them that we can match you culturally, we can communicate well, and we work on your time, on your clocks. But then 80% beyond sales and the client-facing people, everything behind that is people in Latin America, people in Asia, in all other parts of the world that are fueling and doing the real work. I think that's the model of the future for many service-based businesses. Yeah, and we've talked with a lot of SaaS founders. They're like, my dev team is in Taiwan, in Vietnam, like all these Asian countries. And they're like, my overhead cost, it's 30, 40% of what it should be. And even investors mm -hmm. love that. And I guess my other question is for your business, like you talked about some of the good things, but what are some of the challenges that you had where you couldn't sleep at night or maybe made you lose some hair for the business? There was, when I joined Google, they insisted that I sell the agency, that I divest. And that created a lot of stress. Ultimately, we worked out a deal where I didn't have to do that. That was one, one pivotal point. I'm really glad I didn't do that. Uh, I'm thinking of other times of, I don't think we've had any moments of major crisis which I think we're fortunate for. There's been tougher times and those have been extended and there's been good times. But I think the key is really to always try to maintain a long-term view 
And I have to wake up every morning and, and be honest with myself and, and say that this is still what I want to be doing. I still enjoy doing this. I still love the people I work with and our clients. And even if we're struggling now, I think we'll always find a way to figure out how to be relevant as an agency. And it's my job mostly to keep steering us into the new areas of opportunity. If it's generative AI now, or it could be the post third party cookie world of digital marketing. I have to read the tea leaves and I have to try to steer us into that direction. So we have capabilities and, and, and services that are ready to meet the future demand. And that is what still excites me. And that's what keeps me going. And that, that's what motivates me even when times like right now, when times are certainly tougher for us. I can relate to that a lot too, especially you seem like a very calm person, but when me and Kim were starting, I guess Biori was more like butting heads. And I feel like going from that calmer state, I know it's a little bit self-help lingo here, whatever you call it, but that calmer state, just knowing everything's going to be okay. And even when you communicate with the team, I feel like you're more likely to reach your goals as opposed to panicking, being angry, or like being disappointed at the market. At the end yeah. of the day, you can only control what you can control. And that's how you react to a situation. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And as a leader of an agency, and you guys probably know this, you have to maintain a very consistent, calm, and even keel face or persona to, to the team. Even if, if you're really excited, you have to tone down your excitement. If you're really pissed off, if you're really disappointed, you also have to find ways to pick yourself up when you're in front of the team. They should see you as someone who's very emotionally stable in the face of a lot of ups and downs in the business. That's very important. Yeah. I it guess that's our own job security too. Yeah. We've seen that too. And we're learning throughout that. That's another founder's thing that you have to maintain your composure, be stoic about that. But it's like part of the journey that we all learn. Uh, and it's exciting for everyone to see it, even the team grow with us. Hmm. Do you have anything else you want to say to the audience? No, not really. I, I really enjoyed this. We covered a whole lot and hope we get a chance to do it again. And I'd like to have you guys on my show too sometime soon. It's uh, more marketing there. Definitely. There's yeah. a lot to nerd out uh, there. Awesome. Great. Sounds great. Uh, you have a great honeymoon week. After that, we can play basketball. Yeah, this is it. All right. Thanks Ken. so much, Paris. Yeah. Thanks Take for your time, Paris. Take care. Thank you.